Falofalava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suisuiki. Coming up, competition heats up at the Pacific Games also. It's really important that parents empower their children and build their self-esteem. A Cook Islands woman is on a mission to increase awareness of dyslexia. And later on... Coconut is such a premium product and I've tried different versions of it. A Fijian ice cream maker scoops up a sweet relationship. The excitement continues on at the 17th Pacific Games hosted by Solomon Islands. More medals were decided this week on Wednesday as the different competitions got underway, including archery, basketball, golf, rugby league nines, sailing, swimming, table tennis, tennis, volleyball and weightlifting. RNZ Pacific editor Kuroi Hawkins is currently in Honiara and he joins me on Pacific Waves. Alolo you, Kuroi. It's day three of the Pacific Games. I'm just going to cut to the chase, but which country is dominating the middle tally so far? Yeah, hallelujah to uh, Sana. So New Caledonia, 17 gold. They're the reigning Pacific Games overall team champions. 13 silver, 16 bronze, six in total. That's like a whole clear 20 medals between them and second place Australia. Uh, in third place, Samoa. They had some strong showings. Their first gold came from swimmer Olivia Borg uh, in the 100-meter butterfly. Um, she actually took out... Uh, the gold in a competition that's been dominated by the French Pacific territories, um, Tahiti and New Caledonia. Um, Tahiti are in, in fourth and rounding up the top five, it's Solomon Islands, the host nation, with uh, five gold, nine silver and six bronze for 20 medal counts so far. Any standout moments for you at the Games? I think, like, obviously coming from here and and... Like some of the places where these venues were built are my old school. Like there just used to be grass grass pitches that we would play football on and walk around and to see the infrastructure, to see the the people coming to these games and, and just, you know, having something so, I don't know, like I wouldn't say state of the art, but something of this, like an actual stadium in the city that's just known for being dusty and and quite um, uh, off the beaten beaten path, so to speak, is great. And it's been great to see the the community getting involved and engaged. Obviously, some of the the gate prices are quite high, so there's actually more people sometimes trying to see over the fence which, and and are looking uh, climbing up on um, buildings and trees and watching uh, into the main stadium where some of the games are being played. So I think the atmosphere is quite festive um, in in and around the game city, and and just having all of these international visitors in the country, I think, is really lifted spirits. I love that you've opened up about your personal connection. So what's the mood been like among the locals in Solomon Islands during the games? It's the first time they've hosted this event, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think the first thing I should say is like this: there's hundreds of volunteers that are working tirelessly behind the scenes. I'm, I'm filing late overnight and just seeing these people that are committing their time, staying late to do the cleanups, to do the all of the uh, helping out with the officiating, the catering, looking after the guests and all of the, 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 the a lot of the, the transport is actually private, um, privately owned vehicles that are being uh, asked to come and look after athletes. So all of that hospitality, uh, uh, I think, is what I'm hearing, especially from athletes that I'm talking to um, they're all complaining about the heat. Obviously, I'm I'm sweltering sitting sitting in my car talking to you as well. But uh, the the hospitality of the people, the 
um, uh, some of the comments I'm hearing from athletes as to why they are enjoying being here um, for the Pacific Games. And the, the first ever, uh, I, and I would say the largest international event that this country has ever, ever hosted. And speaking of athletes, who do we need to keep on our radar? Yeah, there's quite a, quite a few big stars in the country. Um, one that I've actually had uh, been able to meet, um, uh, their parents actually on the first opening ceremony is uh, Eileen Zikamatana, who is uh, weightlifting for Australia in the 90-kilogram category. She's a Commonwealth gold medalist for Fiji in 2018. Had some issues with Fiji Weightlifting Federation and switched allegiance to Australia in 2019. She won her first gold for Australia at the 2022 Com Games in Birmingham. Um, and uh, she's the first woman to win gold for two different countries at the Com Games. This is her first Pacific Games for Australia. Yesterday, so I was sitting there supporting the rest of the Australian team, the, uh, the, the lighter weights that are competing. Um, I, I met her mother and father in the stadium on the opening ceremony, and she actually has a Solomon Islands connection, which was quite interesting. Uh, one, of her, one of her grandparents uh, has some connections here to Solomon Islands. So she's actually um, representing Australia, obviously, um, has represented Fiji and has a personal connection to the games venue. So someone to watch. I'll be looking forward to going along and, and seeing her perform. She's, uh, she's uh, competing 12.30 Thursday at the Maratha Hall here in Honiara. Just to wrap up, what can we expect in the next few days? Yeah, so there's a, a few a few of the other competitions kicking off now. Uh, I guess the, 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 uh, a few of the events at these games are actually automatic qualifiers for Paris. So already we've seen the Katawa veteran um, weightlifter for Papua New Guinea qualify. Uh, we have um, uh, in the New Zealand team that are here, we have people here for boxing and weightlifting trying to qualify for Paris Olympics. So we have, we'll have a few of the teams that already competed and completed their games leaving the country and the, the people whose events coming up, including athletics. Obviously, the, the star of the show next week will be starting to change places with, with the different athlete teams that are here. So it's yeah, it's uh, quite a fast-moving um, event. There's lots of parallel things going on. So, yeah, as, as you've seen probably from the coverage, we're just trying to do one or two of the, the sports a day and try and actually do a feature on each of them. And um, massive thanks to you guys and the team back in Wellington for staying across the medal statistics and all of that for us as well. A Cook Islands health advocate has made it her mission to identify students who are dyslexic in order to bridge the gap between parents, schools and the education system. Dyslexia is not an obvious disability and very few people, especially in the Cook Islands, know of it and how it affects a person. In response, Jean-Marie Francis founded the Cook Islands Dyslexia Society in 2021 and has lived experience raising a daughter with dyslexia. The Society receives funding from the Australian High Commission and UNESCO for the one-to-one tutoring program, which is changing lives across the Cook Islands. She's also leading assessments in Mauke, Atiu, Mangaya and Mitiaro to empower teachers and parents on how to spot and best serve students. Results from the survey are expected by the end of the year. Alicia Foon spoke to Jean-Marie Francis. I can speak from a parent's point of view. It's really important that parents empower their children, give them confidence and self, and build their self-esteem because they don't get that. And so they're mocked most of the way through their school, um, their schooling, their education, their peers mock them, their family and, you know, and in the community. They're considered dumb and stupid and they're absolutely not. 
So it's really important that we educate people on that. My job as a parent of a dyslexic child and a dyslexic granddaughter is to ensure that any parent that's going through what I went through initially um, becomes empowered and emboldened to, to start defending their child and supporting them in what they want to do. So I don't really care about the, the schoolwork as far as I'm concerned. They're more practical, you know, and they've got phenomenal memories. Well, they can't read and write mostly, so, so what's the point? Um, and I also educate um, teachers, and it's really important, because they say, well, what can we do? You know, you can, assess our, our, you can assess my student, but what am I going to do now? And I say, well, for starters, don't make them read. You know, that's an easy one. Don't make them read. Get their friend or their peer to sit there when they're doing schoolwork and get them to read for them. Get them to read to them, you know. So don't embarrass them in front of the class. You can verbally test a child. And if they, if they want to attempt to have the book, you know, make sure that they just don't get teased. They've got phenomenal memories and they're great kids. And for parents that want to spot signs, what would you tell them? Oh, they're very easy. So initially you're, you're looking at the fact that they don't want to read, for starters. They won't like to read. They make, a, they make lots of excuses. They won't write They'll come home with some homework, maybe, and, and you know, and you don't actually know. So those are very obvious signs that they that they don't like to pick up a pen. But they may have trouble actually holding a pen um, when they're talking. They um, they can't wrap their mouths around certain words. The obvious ones when they start writing their letters are backwards. Um, and if they do start reading, they're going to read their B's as D's or P's and Q's. Uh, for some dyslexics from, on the real broad spectrum, the, when they're reading words or letters, they can actually fall off or they spiral or they dance on the page. And that, that's, a, that's, that's quite a broad one. But in general, most dyslexic children mix their letters up and when they're reading or when they're trying to write like clock, it would be spelled C-L-O-C-H or said would be S-E-D, that sort of thing. And then if they're reading um, dog... You know, if it's supposed to be dog, they may they may read it as God. You know, they'll just mix them up a little bit. Um, and another common one is that they'll put words where there aren't any words in the sentence. A Fijian ice cream maker and the woman of Rambi Island in Fiji have established the perfect relationship. The woman on the island, which is home to many families of Barnabans, transplanted there three generations ago have long made coconut nectar, but never for commercial purposes. During the COVID border shutdown, Kylie Patterson of Maramaniu was searching for a local source of the coconut nectar and with the help of Farmer Plus was connected with the woman of Rambi. Now her ice cream business is growing quickly. Miss Patterson spoke with Don Wiseman and began by telling him what makes coconut nectar, or kamaimai, so appealing. Coconut nectar is a plant-based sweetener. It's made from boiling the sap of the flower blossom of a coconut tree. So you extract the sap from the flower, and when you get in sufficient quantities, then you just boil it. You apply heating, and then it turns into a caramel-colored and, and flavored syrup that you could use pretty much as you would any liquid sweetener, honey or agave, etc. And you're using it for ice cream and things like that? Yes, so our core business was making nice creams, so coconut ice cream, so plant-based. And instead of using refined sugar, I use coconut nectar instead. You're a fast-growing business. You only started 
during COVID or just before COVID? We began at the height of COVID around uh, June, July of 2020. It was an experiment turned business. Uh, and at the time, we were importing coconut nectar from Tuvalu. But now you're able to get it and you've got a deal with the yeah. community on Rambi. Correct. The, the... Now we're able to keep it local and we help support rural women in Rambi. Their, their families make the coconut nectar for us. So we source solely from Rambi at the moment. And how did that come about? It's a long way away from where you are. That is true. Well, when the borders closed in 2020, I really didn't want to use refined sugar. So I reached out to friends and family looking for a local supplier. And then Merita Manley of Party got in touch with me. She was a customer at the time and she knew I was looking for local suppliers of coconut nectar. So she got me in touch with SBC and they funded our first trip to Rambi because it's, it's something that's traditionally made in Rambi. So, yeah, we went to Rambi in September of 2020 and met with one supplier. At the time, we only had one supplier. Now we have about eight. Coconut yeah. nectar is traditionally made, but it was something that wasn't being done. They never got a market for it, so they didn't see the value in, in making it. They would consume it fresh, but not make it into a syrup. So I was able to provide a market, and that's something that we're continuing to grow today. So in fact, you're getting some aid support from Correct. Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, so Pharma Plus has come on board to assist us develop it further. And we've just come back from Rambi, uh, I think two weeks ago, to do our scoping work and then we reassess and see where we go from here. Your business is growing exponentially. Uh, I guess we've come leaps and bounds from where we began. Yes, but we've still got a lot more growing to do. It's not easy work, especially in community development, but we're making we're making some moves, so I'm, I'm happy with that. Do you see yourself eventually exporting or...? That's the goal. Uh, coconut nectar is such a premium product, and I've tried different versions of it made by um, in the Asian countries, in the Philippines, etc. And I've, I've tried these, but they're not the same quality as, as what you would get here in Rambi. It is a different flavor profile altogether. So we develop it further, standardize the processing. The export market is where we're looking. Tell me a little bit more about this product, because, you know, as you say, it's a, an alternative to using simple yeah. sugar. So yes. what, why is it better than honey, say? Well, for one, um, it has uh, health benefits. Health benefits. It has a low, it's very nutritious, a lot more nutritious than, than honey. It has about 17 different nutrient profiles to it and amino acids, etc. But it also has a very low glycemic index of 35. It's one of the lowest, probably the second, second lowest in comparison to agave for a natural plant-based sweetener. Only 35. Honey ranges between 50 to 60, depending on how pure the honey is. Even maple syrup is, is exponentially really high. And the fructose level of coconut nectar is about 10% in comparison to other, other sweeteners that require heating, possibly. And that is because... There's not much in terms of processing for the coconut nectar. Aside from boiling it, that's it. So yeah. glycemic indexes for low GI, it's beneficial for those who are trying to watch their sugar intake or the spike in their sugar levels. So I have a few customers who are diabetic who are able to have this product and not have to worry about their sugar level spiking. And they test it before and after they consume it, which is why they also consume my ice cream because there isn't anything in the market that really they can take and enjoy something without having to worry about the health issues attached to it. That's Pacific Ways for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, to Fast Week 4.